Section 1 of Popular Lectures on Scientific Subjects by Hermann von Helmholtz. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by William Jones, Bonita Springs, Florida. Popular Lectures on Scientific Subjects by Hermann von Helmholtz. Chapter 2, Part 1. On the Origin and Significance of Geometrical Axioms. Lecture delivered in the Docentum Verein in Heidelberg in the year 1870. The fact that a science can exist and can be developed, as has been the case with geometry, has always attracted the closest attention among those who are interested in questions relating to the basis of the theory of cognition. Of all branches of human knowledge, there is none which, like it, has sprung as a completely armed Minerva from the head of Jupiter. None before whose death-dealing aegis, doubt and inconsistency have so little dared to raise their eyes. It escapes the tedious and troublesome task of collecting experimental facts, which is the province of the natural sciences in the strict sense of the word. The sole form of its scientific method is deduction. Conclusion is deduced from conclusion, and yet no one of common sense doubts but that these geometrical principles must find their practical application in the real world about us. Land surveying, as well as architecture, the construction of machinery, no less than mathematical physics, are continually calculating relations of space of the most varied kind by geometric principles. They expect that the success of their constructions and experiments shall agree with these calculations, and no case is known in which this expectation has been falsified, provided the calculations were made correctly and with sufficient data. Indeed, the fact that geometry exists and is capable of all this has always been used as a prominent example in the discussion on that question which forms, as it were, the center of all antitheses of philosophical systems, that there can be a cognition of principles destitute of any basis drawn from experience. In the answer to Kant's celebrated question, how are synthetical principles a priori possible? Geometrical axioms are certainly those examples which appear to show most decisively that synthetical principles are a priori possible at all. The circumstance that such principles exist and force themselves on our conviction is regarded as a proof that space is an a priori mode of all external perception. It appears thereby to postulate for this a priori form not only the character of a purely formal scheme of itself quite unsubstantial in which any given result experience would fit, but also 
to include certain peculiarities of the scheme which would bring it about that only a certain content and one which as it were is strictly defined could occupy it and be apprehended by us it is precisely this relation of geometry to the theory of cognition which emboldens me to speak to you on geometrical subjects in an assembly of those who for the most part have limited their mathematical studies to the ordinary instruction in schools fortunately the amount of geometry taught us in our gymnasia will enable you to follow at any rate the tendency of the principles i am about to discuss i intend to give you an account of a series of recent and closely connected mathematical researches which are concerned with the geometrical axioms their relations to experience with the question whether it is logically possible to replace them by others seeing that the researches in question are more immediately designed to furnish proofs for experts in a region which more than most any other requires a higher power of abstraction and that they are virtually inaccessible to the non-mathematician i will endeavour to explain to such a one the question at issue i need scarcely remark that my explanation will give no proof of the correctness of the new views he who seeks this proof must take the trouble to study the original researches any one who has entered the gates of the first elementary axioms of geometry that is the mathematical doctrine of space finds on his path that unbroken chain of conclusions of which i just spoke by which the ever more varied and more complicated figures are brought within the domain of law but even in their first elements certain principles are laid down with respect to which geometry confesses that she cannot prove them and can only assume that any one who understands the essence of these principles will at once admit their correctness these are the so-called axioms for example the proposition that if the shortest line drawn between two points is called a straight line there can be only one such straight line again it is an axiom that through any three points in space not lying in a straight line a plane may be drawn i e a surface which will wholly include every straight line joining any two of its points another axiom about which there has been much discussion affirms that through a point lying without a straight line only one straight line can be drawn parallel to the first two straight lines that lie in the same plane and never meet however far they may be produced being called parallel there are also axioms that determine the number of dimensions of space and its surfaces lines and points showing how they are continuous as in the propositions that a solid is bounded by a surface a surface by a line and a line by a point that the point is indivisible that by the movement of a point 
a line is described. By that of a line, a line or a surface. By that of a surface, a surface or a solid. But by the movement of a solid, a solid and nothing else is described. Now what is the origin of such propositions, unquestionably true, yet incapable of proof in a science where everything else is reasoned conclusion? Are they inherited from the divine source of our reason, as the idealistic philosophers think? Or is it only that the ingenuity of mathematicians has hitherto not been penetrating enough to find the proof? Every new votary, coming with fresh zeal to geometry, naturally strives to succeed where all before him have failed. And it is quite right that each should make the trial afresh. For, as the question has hitherto stood, it is only by the fruitlessness of one's own efforts that one can be convinced of the impossibility of finding a proof. Meanwhile, solitary inquirers are always from time to time appearing who become so deeply entangled in complicated trains of reasoning that they can no longer discover their mistakes and believe they have solved the problem. The axiom of parallels especially has called forth a great number of seeming demonstrations. The main difficulty in these inquiries is, and always has been, the readiness with which results of everyday experience become mixed up as apparent necessities of thought with the logical processes, so long as Euclid's method of constructive intuition is exclusively followed in geometry. It is in particular extremely difficult on this method to be quite sure that in the steps prescribed for the demonstration we have not involuntarily and unconsciously drawn in some most general results of experience which the power of executing certain parts of the operation has already taught us practically. In drawing any subsidiary line for the sake of his demonstration, the well-trained geometer always asks if it is possible to draw such a line. It is well known that problems of construction play an essential part in the system of geometry. At first sight, these appear to be practical operations introduced for the training of learners, but in reality they establish the existence of definite figures. They show that points, straight lines, or circles such as the problem requires to be constructed are possible under all conditions, or they determine any exceptions that there may be. The point on which the investigations turn that we are about to consider is essentially of this nature. The foundation of all proof by Euclid's method consists in establishing the congruence of lines, angles, plane figures, solids, etc. To make the congruence evident, the geometrical figures are supposed to be applied to one another, of course without changing their form and dimensions. 
that this is in fact possible we have all experienced from our earliest youth but if we proceed to build necessities of thought upon this assumption of the free translation of fixed figures with unchanged form to every part of space we must see whether the assumption does not involve some presupposition of which no logical proof is given we shall see later on that it does indeed contain one of the most serious import but if so every proof by congruence rests upon a fact which is obtained from experience only i offer these remarks at first only to show what difficulties attend the complete analysis of the presuppositions we make in employing the common constructive method we evade them when we apply to the investigation of principles the analytical method of modern algebraical geometry the whole process of algebraical calculation is a purely logical operation it can yield no relation between the quantities submitted to it that is not already contained in the equations which give occasion for its being applied the recent investigations in question have accordingly been conducted almost exclusively by means of the purely abstract methods of analytical geometry however after discovering by the abstract method what are the points in question we shall best get a distinct view of them by taking a region of narrower limits than our own world of space let us as we logically may suppose reasoning beings of only two dimensions to live and move on the surface of some solid body we will assume that they have not the power of perceiving anything outside this surface but that upon it they have perceptions similar to ours if such beings worked out a geometry they would of course assign only two dimensions to their space they would ascertain that a point in moving describes a line and that a line in moving describes a surface but they could as little represent to themselves what further spatial construction would be generated by a surface moving out of itself as we can represent what would be generated by a solid moving out of the space we know by the much abused expression to represent or to be able to think how something happens i understand and i do not see how anything else can be understood by it without loss of all meaning the power of imagining the whole series of sensible impressions that would be had in such a case now as no sensible impression is known relating to such an unheard-of event as the movement to a fourth dimension would be to us or as a movement to our third dimension would be to the inhabitants of a surface such a representation is as impossible as the representation of colors would be to one born blind if a description of them in general terms would be given to him our surface beings 
would also be able to draw shortest lines in their superficial space these would not necessarily be straight lines in our sense but what are technically called geodetic lines of the surface on which they live lines such as are described by a tense thread laid along the surface and which can slide upon it freely i will henceforth speak of such lines as the straightest lines of any particular surface or given space so long as to bring out their analogy with the straight lines in a plane i hope by this expression to make the conception more easy for the apprehension of my non-mathematical hearers without giving rise to misconception now if beings of this kind lived on an infinite plane their geometry would be exactly the same as our planimetry they would affirm that only one straight line is possible between two points that through a third point lying without this line only one line can be drawn parallel to it that the ends of a straight line never meet though it be produced to infinity and so on their space might be infinitely extended but even if there were limits to their movement and perception they would be able to represent to themselves a continuation beyond these limits and thus their space would appear to them infinitely extended just as ours does to us although our bodies cannot leave the earth and our sight only reaches as far as the visible fixed stars but intelligent beings of the kind supposed might also live on the surface of a sphere their shortest or straightest line between two points would then be an arc of the great circle passing through them every great circle passing through two points is by these divided into two parts and if they are unequal the shorter is certainly the shortest line on the sphere between the two points but also the other or larger arc of the same great circle is a geodetic or straightest line i e every smaller part of it is the shortest line between its ends thus the notion of the geodetic or straightest line is not quite identical with that of the shortest line if the two given points are ends of a diameter of the sphere every plane passing through this diameter cuts semicircles on the surface of the sphere all of which are shortest lines between the ends in which case there is an equal number of equal shortest lines between the given points accordingly the axiom of there being only one shortest line between two points would not hold without a certain exception for the dwellers on a sphere of parallel lines the sphere dwellers would know nothing they would maintain that any two straightest lines sufficiently produced must finally cut not in one only but in two points the sum of the angles of a triangle would always be greater than two right angles 
increasing as the surface of the triangle grew greater. They could thus have no conception of geometrical similarity between greater and smaller figures of the same kind, for with them a greater triangle must have different angles from a smaller one. Their space would be unlimited, but would be found to be finite or at least represented as such. It is clear, then, that such beings must set up a very different system of geometrical axioms from that of the inhabitants of a plane, or from ours with our space of three dimensions, though the logical powers of all were the same. Nor are more examples necessary to show that geometrical axioms must vary according to the kind of space inhabited by beings whose powers of reason are quite in conformity with ours. But let us proceed still farther. Let us think of reasoning beings existing on the surface of an egg-shaped body. Shortest lines could be drawn between three points of such a surface and a triangle constructed, but if the attempt were made to construct congruent triangles at different parts of the surface, it would be found that two triangles with three pairs of equal sides would not have their angles equal. The sum of the angles of a triangle drawn at the sharper pole of the body would depart farther from two right angles than if the triangle were drawn at the blunter pole or at the equator. Hence it appears that not even such a simple figure as a triangle can be moved on such a surface without change of form. It would also be found that if circles of equal radii were constructed at different parts of a surface, the length of the radii being always measured by shortest lines along the surface, the periphery would be greater at the blunter end than at the sharper end. We see, accordingly, that if a surface admits of the figure's line on it being freely moved without change of any of their lines and angles as measured along it, the property is a special one, and does not belong to every kind of surface. The condition under which a surface possesses this important property was pointed out by Gauss in his celebrated treatise on the curvature of surfaces. The measure of curvature, as he called it, i.e., the reciprocal of the product of the greatest and least radii of curvature, must be everywhere equal over the whole extent of the surface. Gauss showed at the same time that this measure of curvature is not changed if the surface is bent without distension or contraction of any part of it. Thus we can roll up a flat sheet of paper into the form of a cylinder or of a cone without any change in the dimensions of the figures taken along the surface of the sheet. Or the hemispherical fundus of a bladder may be rolled into a spindle shape without altering the dimensions on the surface. Geometry on a plane will therefore be the same as on a cylindrical surface, only in the latter case we must imagine that 
any number of layers of this surface, like the layers of a rolled sheet of paper, lie one upon another, and that after each entire revolution around the cylinder, a new layer is reached different from the previous one. These observations are necessary to give the reader a notion of a kind of surface, the geometry of which is on the whole similar to that of the plane, but in which the axiom of parallels does not hold good. This is the kind of curved surface, which is, as it were, geometrically the counterpart of a sphere, and which has therefore been called the pseudospherical surface by the distinguished Italian mathematician E. Beltrami, who has investigated its properties. It is a saddle-shaped surface of which only limited pieces or strips can be connectedly represented in our space, but which may yet be thought of as infinitely continued in all directions, since each piece lying at the limit of the part constructed can be conceived as drawn back to the middle of it and then continued. The piece displaced must in the process change its flexure, but not its dimensions, just as happens with a sheet of paper moved about a cone formed out of a plane rolled up. Such a sheet fits the conical surface in every part, but must be more bent near the vertex, and cannot be so moved over the vertex as to be at the same time adapted to the existing cone and to its imaginary continuation beyond. Like the plane and the sphere, pseudospherical surfaces have their measure of curvature constant, so that every piece of them can be exactly applied to every other piece, and therefore all figures constructed at one place on the surface can be transferred to any other place with perfect congruity of form and perfect equality of all dimensions lying on the surface itself. The measure of curvature, as laid down by Gauss, which is positive for the sphere, zero for the plane, would have a constant negative value for pseudospherical surfaces, because the two principal curvatures of a saddle-shaped surface have their concavity turned opposite ways. A strip of pseudospherical surface may, for example, be represented by the inner surface turned towards the axis of a solid anchor ring. If the plane figure AABB, shown in figure 1, is made to revolve on its axis of symmetry AB, the two arcs AB will describe a pseudospherical concave convex surface like that of the ring. Above and below, towards AA and BB, the surface will turn outwards with ever-increasing flexure till it becomes perpendicular to the axis and ends at the edge of one curvature infinite. Or, again, half of a pseudospherical surface may be rolled up into the shape of a champagne glass, figure two, with tapering stem infinitely prolonged. 
but the surface is always necessarily bounded by a sharp edge beyond which it cannot be directly continued only by supposing each single piece of the edge cut loose and drawn along the surface of the ring or glass can it be brought into places of different flexure at which further continuation of the piece is possible in this way too the straightest lines of the pseudospherical surface may be infinitely produced they do not like those on a sphere return upon themselves but as on a plane only one shortest line is possible between the two given points the axiom of parallels does not however hold good if a straightest line is given on the surface and a point without it a whole pencil of straightest lines may pass through the point no one of which though infinitely produced cuts the first line the pencil itself being limited by two straightest lines one of which intersects one of the end of the given line at an infinite distance the other the other end such a system of geometry which excluded the axiom of parallels was devised on euclid's synthetic method as far back as the year eighteen twenty nine by n j lobachewski professor of mathematics at kazan and it was proved that this system could be carried out as consistently as euclid's it agrees exactly with the geometry of the pseudospherical surfaces worked out recently by beltrami thus we see that in the geometry of two dimensions a surface is marked out as a plane or a sphere or a pseudospherical surface by the assumption that any figure may be moved about in all directions without change of dimensions the axiom that there is only one shortest line between any two points distinguishes the plane and the pseudospherical surface from the sphere and the axiom of parallels marks off the plane from the pseudosphere these three axioms are in fact necessary and sufficient to define as a plane the surface to which euclid's planimetry has reference as distinguished from all other modes of space in two dimensions the difference between plane and spherical geometry has long been evident but the meaning of the axiom of parallels could not be understood until gauss had developed the notion of surfaces flexible without dilation and consequently that of the possibly infinite continuation of pseudospherical surfaces inhabiting as we do a space of three dimensions and endowed with organs of sense for their perception we can represent to ourselves the various cases in which beings on a surface might have to develop their perceptions of space for we have only to limit our own perceptions to a narrower field it is easy to think away perceptions that we have but it is very difficult to imagine perceptions to which there is nothing analogous in our experience 
When, therefore, we pass to space of three dimensions, we are stopped in our power of representation by the structure of our organs and the experiences got through them which correspond only to the space in which we live. There is, however, another way of treating geometry scientifically. All known space relations are measurable. That is, they may be brought to determination of magnitudes, lines, angles, surfaces, volumes. Problems in geometry can therefore be solved by finding methods of calculation for arriving at unknown magnitudes from known ones. This is done in analytical geometry, where all forms of space are treated only as quantities determined by means of other quantities. Even the axioms themselves make reference to magnitudes. The straight line is defined as the shortest between two points, which is a determination of quantity. The axiom of parallels declares that if two straight lines and a plane do not intersect, are parallel, the alternate angles, or the corresponding angles, made by a third line intersecting them, are equal. Or it may be laid down instead that the sum of the angles of any triangle is equal to two right angles. These also are determinations of quantity. Now we may start with this view of space according to which the position of a point may be determined by measurements in relation to any given figure, a system of coordinates, taken as fixed, and then inquire what are the special characteristics of our space as manifested in the measurements that have to be made, and how it differs from other extended quantities of like variety. This path was first entered by one too early lost to science, B. Riemann of Göttingen. It has the peculiar advantage that all its operations consist in pure calculation of quantities, which quite obviates the danger of habitual perceptions being taken for necessities of thought. The number of measurements necessary to give the position of a point is equal to the number of dimensions of the space in question. In a line, the distance from one fixed point is sufficient, that is to say, one quantity, and a surface the distances from two fixed points must be given, in space the distances from three, or we can require, as on the earth, longitude, latitude, and height above the sea, or, as is usual in analytic geometry, the distances from three coordinate planes. Riemann calls a system of differences in which one thing can be determined by n measurements, an n-fold extended aggregate, or an aggregate of n dimensions. Thus, the space in which we live is a threefold, a surface is twofold, and a line is a simple extended aggregate of points. Time also is an aggregate of one dimension. 
The system of colors is an aggregate of three dimensions, inasmuch as each color, according to the investigations of Thomas Young and of Clark Maxwell, may be represented as a mixture of three primary colors taken in definite quantities. The particular mixtures can be actually made with the color top. In the same way, we may consider the system of simple tones as an aggregate of two dimensions if we distinguish only pitch and intensity and leave out of account differences of timbre. This generalization of the idea is well suited to bring out the distinction between space of three dimensions and other aggregates. We can, as we know from daily experience, compare the vertical distance of two points with the horizontal distance of two others, because we can apply a measure first to the one pair and then to the other. But we cannot compare the difference between two tones of equal pitch and different intensity with that between two tones of equal intensity and different pitch. Riemann showed, by considerations of this kind, that the essential foundation of any system of geometry is the expression that it gives for the distance between two points lying in any direction toward one another beginning with the infinitesimal interval. End of section one.